Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. While you're doing that, let me just uh, introduce this by saying welcome to the new year, 2014. I'm still, if you guys are like me, it's going to take me till March to sign all my checks and everything else with 2013. I'm always messing that up. But as we're, as we're going to this passage, I want to remind you that as a whole, our culture, America in general, believes that the Bible is a sacred book. However, when it comes to knowledge of the Bible, on the other hand, there are some interesting statistics that are out there. These are actually kind of old. If anything, I think it's probably gotten worse. But I think these stats are about eight, nine years old. So fewer than half of the adults in America can name all four Gospels. All right, so, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, only maybe, maybe less than half can name those four Gospels. And many Christians cannot, cannot identify two, more than two or three disciples. So if you get anything more than that, man, you, you're knowing your Bible pretty well, comparatively speaking. According to data, data from the Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments, which I find really ironic that they want to take them out of the courtrooms and people don't even know what's on them. But never mind that. Uh, I can te- attest to this, actually, in our youth group. Uh, last year we did a series on the Ten Commandments, and I did a kind of a poll, rough survey at the beginning of it, and I think the average score was three or four out of the Ten Commandments. So that's even in our church. I, I noticed in our youth group that that was just something that we have. And this one is just, I just put it in here because I just found it was funny, is 12% of the adults believe that Joan of Arc is Noah's wife. So if you're one of those people, she's not. Um, There's many other polls, articles, statistics that are out there which would all tell the same story that we don't know our Bibles that that we revere. Because as a culture, we revere the Bible. We know that it's a sacred book, but as a whole, we don't really know it. So this morning, uh, in this very first Sunday of January, I just wanted to take the opportunity just to remind you of the Bible that we have and of a God who speaks. So to do so, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. So long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Hebrews, uh, just to kind of give you a bit of an introduction to the book itself, it derives its name, its title, from who it's addressing. There are Hebrew Christians at the time, likely second-generation Christians, converted Jews. And these converted Christians, Jews, are being tempted to go back to the Old Testament system. Because at the time, uh, the Roman Empire, Ju- or for the long time, Christianity was underneath the umbrella of Judaism. It was seen as a sect of Judaism for the rough beginning of it, but after a time, it began to become its own religion, and as such, it began to get persecuted. So these converted Jews were being tempted to go back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews is writing this, is speaking this to a group of Hebrews to encourage them to persevere in the faith. Um, No one really knows who gave this letter or who delivered this sermon. Some have suggested Paul, 
Barnabas is another one. Priscilla and Aquila is other, or Apollos. I don't think it really matters in the long run who wrote it. But regardless of who you believe wrote it, it's a, it's a gem in the New Testament because it really draws the connection from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And if there was one theme of this, this book, it would be the superiority of Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. If you want to read about how Jesus is superior to everything that was going on in the Old Testament, that's what Hebrews will draw your attention to. So what we have in this book, and this first two, two verses here is a contrast between the Old Testament way of doing things and how Revelation came in the Old Testament time and how Revelation is coming in the New Testament time. So first we read that in the Old Testament, in verse 1, that long ago the author, the prophets delivered this message to the Israelites. And he contrasts that with the last days. So long ago would have been probably about 500 years. You know, so about 500 years ago, God delivered this message through the prophets, but in these last days, he gave us this message through his son. So what, when are the last days? The last days is the, is the time between when Jesus ascended and when he returns. So we are living in the last days. For the last 2,000 years, we have been in the last days. So second, we read that, at, that God spoke at many times. The Old Testament itself was, give, was written down in a period of about a thousand years. So it was at various times it was recorded down. However, in the New Testament, it was written within a period of about 50 to 60 years. So it was relatively quick. And we could say that it was progressive in the sense that every message kind of built on the previous message so that it continuously grew. Third in the Old Testament, God spoke in a variety of ways. Uh, some of the ways that he spoke was through like dreams, visions, through an angel, direct speech, sometimes inscribing things actually in stone, such as the Ten Commandments. But in contrast, it is said that God has finally, you could say, spoken through his Son, who is the supreme revelation of God. So in the, in the Old Testament, God would speak through a human mediator. It would go through a human being. So a prophet would say, thus says the Lord. And that's what, you'd hear the old, that's what you'd hear the Old Testament prophets say. But in the New Testament, we would come across the Gospels where Jesus would say, Hey, you have heard it said, but I am saying to you. Showing that he is indeed God delivering that message. So, these point of contrast are important. We're going to revisit them. But I want to draw your attention to the main idea of this sentence, which is that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That's the main idea, is that he has spoken to us. So you see from the very beginning of Scripture, we have a God who speaks. If you guys remember Genesis 1, and Pastor Sean just taught on that not too long ago, but how did God create everything? He spoke it into existence. God would say, let there be light, and there was light. And that's how God created everything in Genesis 1. From the very beginning, he was a speaking God. Now, God didn't have to speak. You know, God could have been kind of like a blacksmith or an artist in his studio, put it all together, wound it up, and he didn't necessarily have to do any speaking. But it is in his nature to be a God who speaks, a God who communicates. And we can see from that that our God is not a deistic kind of God at all. See, I, I think, and what deism is, and I'll explain that in a second, is that most Americans, I would say, generally believe in the existence of God. I mean, you go to someone on the street and say, hey, do you believe in God? And they'd probably say, yes, I believe in God. But their view of God is very different from the Judeo-Christian view of God. And what in the world does it mean when I call their view of God deistic? 
Well, deistic God is this. It's a God who put the world together, kind of like the blacksmith or the artist in his studio, kind of wound it up and now is removed from it. So he wound it up, he put it in place, and now he's done. He's withdrawn from that. And they would say maybe he interferes from time to time, but for the most part, he's just withdrawn. He's kind of that old guy in the sky who did everything. He's kind of letting people do whatever they want. Now, if that's your view, and I hope it isn't, I hope that you'll find today's message vastly more encouraging than a God who doesn't really care about his creation. And we can see even in Genesis 1 that we have a God who is engaged in creation by speaking it into existence. But why does God speak? Why does God need to communicate? Why does God need to give us revelation? Why isn't nature itself enough to testify about God? So those are some questions that the doctrine of revelation covers. Revelation is simply a word that means God making known to us what is previously unknown. Like we wouldn't know something about God unless he he told us. But why isn't creation itself enough? Well, let's read Romans 1, 18 through 20, and I believe it's going to be up on the screen as well. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who... By their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So Paul is teaching about general revelation here, the revelation that's available to every human being on the planet. And it's enough, i.e. creation, is enough to teach them about God, that he exists. And he even tells us what they can understand about God from creation. First, that he is in existence, that he has a divine nature, and that, two, that he is powerful. David would say it this way in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Therefore, we can say that every human being from general general revelation knows that God exists, that he's here, and that he's powerful. And I want you to know that I said every. Even the most ardent atheist, according to our understanding of general revelation, has an understanding that God exists. So why do people uh, denounce or don't believe in the existence of the Creator? Well, Paul continues to explain in Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Earlier, we read it in verse 20, that they suppress the truth of God for a lie. It's not because the God in creation and that creation is unclear, that you can't find God in creation, but rather it's because of their sin, because of their unrighteousness, they put that truth down. They, they suppress it so that they don't know what it is that they actually do indeed know. So I can say, I think you can say, if Scripture is true in what it is saying, that there is no such thing as a true atheist. That there's always going to be, that there's always an innate knowledge that they know that God is exists. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that someone does believe in the existence of God and Note its power. Things that they can get from general revelation. Is that enough to save a person? Well, again, Paul helps us understand this in Romans 2, verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now this passage may seem thick to you, but the basic idea is this, that Gentiles have the law written in their consciences, and through their consciences, they know that they have dis- disobeyed, they've, they've sinned against God's law, and they know that in their consciences. They don't have to have the Old Testament law, because in their conscience, God is imprinted because of our creation in the image of God. We can know what the right thing to do is, but we all know that we have transgressed that at all points. So therefore, even one who believes in the existence of God from creation and believes in his power still will be condemned in the end. So that's the thing. General revelation, creation can only, and as marvelous and as amazing as it is, can only take us so far. We're going to need something else. And that is a harsh word from Romans 1 through 3, that those individuals, and you think about like the world and individuals who haven't even been reached by the gospel, there's enough knowledge out there that God can hold them accountable as David Platt once said, I was in a chapel message uh, at Southeastern, and I remember this vividly. He said that this knowledge is only enough, really, to condemn them to hell. And that really struck me as really harsh, but then that's the reality of what the Bible is teaching here. David Platt would also point, pointed out this in the message, and this really stuck with me. I think this is in his book, Radical, as well, for those who read it. It's like, what about that innocent man in the deep, dark jungles of Africa? You know, why, why isn't why isn't he saved, or wouldn't he be saved? Now, Platt would answer that question, yes. Now, before you, you know, burn all his books and cast him out as a heretic, the problem is that there is no such thing as that innocent man in the deep, dark jungles of Africa, because according to the teaching that we are seeing here in Romans and in Hebrews, that God has revealed enough of himself to hold them accountable. So that's where general revelation, the revelation that we find in creation, leaves us. It's enough to condemn us. So something additional is needed, and that's where special revelation comes in, which is really what the author of Hebrews is focusing in, in here on in, Rome, in the first two verses here. The thing that you and I need to hear from God is his speech, his revelation. Therefore, the, uh, the uh, speech, the revelation of God, is an act of grace and mercy. God didn't have to do it. He was not required to do it. He was not bound to do it, but it was something that he did. So special revelation is God revealing of himself at a specific time to a specific person in a specific place. So God's special revelation was recorded, was written down, and this direct speech of God is what we call our Bible. So the author of Hebrews begins with that main idea that God has spoken to us. And the authors of scriptures were inspired to write what they did, and they did it for the benefit of humanity, not just for themselves, but for us to share in that speech, that special revelation of God. But finally we read that he has spoken to us through his son. And it's through Jesus that we see the fullest picture of who God is. Well, so let's, I just wanted to kind of remind you of what God's word is. I think most of you know these things, but I just want to give you some categories, some ways in which to think about God's word and some ways in which it may apply to you. So the first thing to note about God's word is that it's authoritative. 
what that means is that God's word has authority. It has great weight. It trumps all things. And since it's authoritative, it's the highest court of appeal. It'd be like appealing to the Supreme Court. You know, if you want to get a ruling on, on a law here in America, where do you go? You go to the Supreme Court. They are the last say. So the Bible is the last say in all, in all matters. So we can say that it's authoritative in that sense. But how tempted are we to substitute things for the authority of Scripture? For instance, people's feelings will trump the, the authority of the Bible. For instance, you know, it's, it's not really a sin to live with my boyfriend or girlfriend because it feels so good. I mean, and, and those kinds of things. And what they've done is they've substituted, they've slid their feelings in to trump the authority of God's word. So, so I don't know what it is in your life that you may be tempted to substitute for as an authority uh, instead of the, God's word. But scripture stands and judges overall. We are going to be judged by the words in our Bibles. And because the Bible is authoritative, it is to be obeyed. It's not simply enough to be able to list a set of propositions, to be able to list all these things that you know about the Bible, be able to recount its history, to memorize it all. It's intended to be obeyed. James would say it this way in, in uh, chapter 1, 22 through 25. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and go away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, perse- and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The point is that the Bible, because it has authority in our lives, it is to be obeyed. Now, the di- example James give is a ridiculous one. I can't think of a human being who wouldn't go, you know, looks in the mirror studies himself intently and goes, huh, what do I look like? I mean, that, that's, that's the example James gives. That's like the person who hears God's word and doesn't do it. It's like it didn't have any connection. It doesn't make sense. So because the Bible is authority, has authority in our lives, it's to be obeyed. The second thing I want to point out to you from Scripture is that it's inerrant. Uh, the inerrant, to, when we say that the Bible is inerrant, all we, what we really mean is that the Bible is true in all matters that it touches. So God cannot lie, and what he chooses to make known, what he chooses to reveal to us, is necessarily true. So the Bible is historically accurate, true in our experience, and true regarding uh, the way things actually are. I don't know if you guys saw this movie in the 90s, but the movie Liar, Liar came to mind. Uh, Jim Carrey stars as a character who is, I guess, cursed for a day, and he cannot lie for this day, and he's a lawyer. So, as you can imagine, it is a comedy because he cannot get through his day without just getting stumped. But God is not like bound by a curse like Jim Carrey's character was, but rather it's the, his, in his very nature to always tell the truth. Uh, Numbers twenty three nineteen says this, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Jesus would say in John fourteen six that I am the way the truth and the life. So we can trust the Bible to be true because God himself is always true. The third thing about the Bible that I want you guys to to hear this morning is that it's clear, also called the clarity of scripture. The Bible is meant to be understood. It's not meant to be confusing. God desires people to know what he has spoken, know his revelation in order that they can respond to it. It's not a veiled message, but rather is clear. 
There are, however, I would say that there are some things that are only spiritually discerned. Paul would write this in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what Paul is meaning here is that there are passages of Scripture that really the only true interpreter of it will be a Christian. There are some things that the unsaved, the non-Christian, can't understand from the Scripture. The message is clear enough, but there are some things that are only understood being illuminated by the Spirit. Uh, For a long time, it was thought that if we put the Bible in the hands of ordinary people, they would just mess it up. The responsibility is too grave. It is too difficult of a book. It really needs to be reserved and kept for the individuals who are enlightened and really spiritual, which meant the priest and clergy of the church were the only individuals who could read the Bible. However, there were individuals who began to challenge this. And you guys may have heard of this man, William Tyndale, who translated the first English Bible was convinced that the Bible needed to be in the hands of everyday people. And because of his pursuing this, he was martyred for seeking to translate the Bible into English. As a matter of fact, almost every version today is based upon a lot of his work that he did on that. And I would say that Tyndale, I think, got it right, that it is a message that we can understand. We may not understand all the complexities, but as an overarching story and understanding the basic message of the Bible, I think it's an available message to all of us. So please, do try this at home. This is something to try. Read the Bible. See if you can sense that overarching story and theme through it. Start a Bible in a year program. I know that there's um, some on the back who want the uh, paper copy, and there's also, if you're an electronic person, like I have a Bible app on my phone that like just keeps me updated, but please do read it. It is something that you can understand. And the fourth thing is that I want you to get from the Bible is that it is sufficient. This means that God's word is all that we need. As Moses says uh, in Deuteronomy, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is all that we need concerning life and salvation. We don't need anything else spiritually. Spiritually, you could say it means that God's word is like our bread and water. It's that sustenance that we need spiritually. It's for our very survival. Many Christians, I think, do not understand this on one hand, but in their practice maybe don't live it. For instance, you might be going to something like a horoscope to understand how things are going to go in the future, or consulting a psychic or medium. Or maybe you find your Bible reading dry, so you continuously go to these devotional books and novels. Not that there's anything wrong about those things, but if that's the only source of your spiritual sustenance, that is not a good thing. You're showing in your actions that you really don't believe that God's word is sufficient for you. Let me give you one example, and I think the youth heard it this morning, so they'll have to forgive me, but there's a plethora of books as of late that have been about people who have experienced heaven and or hell. Now, I'm not going to go into the uh, validity of those experiences, but rather just make some observations about how well they sell. I think the main reason that these books sell so well is that we really don't believe that the Bible's promises about heaven and hell. It's descriptions of that. If we did, why would we go buy all these books about people's experiences about it? Tim Challies wrote this on his blog, and I think it's worth repeating here. And this is in regards to the book, Heaven is for Real. If you struggle believing what the Bible says, but learn to find security in the testimony of a toddler, well, 
I feel sorry for you. And I do not mean this in a condescending way. If God's word is not sufficient for you, if the testimony of his spirit given to believers is not enough for you, you will not find any true hope in the unproven tales of a child. This hope may last for a moment, but it will not sustain you. It will not bless you. And in those days when hope is waning and times are hard. So where are we tempted to go outside of Scripture to get additional revelation? What things do you and I need to give up on and instead trust that the Bible is sufficient for all of, for all of our needs spiritually? So let us not be foolish people who are driven to seek all these outside things, but be people who are saturated in the Word of God, trusting that it is sufficient for us. Uh, the fifth thing I want to mention, and I've kind of been leaning into this, talking about its sufficiency, is that the Scripture is closed, or you could say the canon is closed. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we read that God has spoken to us by his Son. Now, I want to draw your attention to that word spoken. In the Greek, uh, it would be called the aorist tense, which is their past tense, meaning that it's a completed action in the past. So this God has spoken, he has finally spoken to us by his Son. So it leads me to conclude that the special revelation of God, because his Son came, it is finished. It's done. So why is that an important idea? Well, it prevents us from adding or subtracting to the word of God. A lot of cults and sects have begun in that way. Muhammad, for instance, started Islam by saying, you know, the Old Testament was good, New Testament was better, but what you really need is my new message. Joseph Smith, very much the same way, goes up Here's the new revelations of God and comes down with additional revelation to Jesus Christ. And I suppose all these, a lot of these religious sects and orders that have begun after that that are somewhat Christian in the very loose sense of the word have begun in the way of seeing that the Bible, the scripture, is not closed. And by the way, I'm always suspicious when a guy or woman for that matter goes up to the woods by themselves and all of a sudden has a new epiphany. That seems pretty convenient to me. I mean, no one else can see it. No one else can testify about it. But whenever you go out by yourself, have this new word, that seems awfully fishy to me. Because I strongly believe that the Bible is closed and that the scripture is indeed closed, I bristle when I hear the line, God told me. Now, I want to give these well, I believe they're well-meaning Christians the benefit of the doubt. I believe what they mean by that is God is leading me to tell you this or to encourage you in this way or to rebuke you in this way and I I do think there's a valid place for that I think the spirit can prompt us to to encourage someone in that way but by claiming God told me really what you're doing is you're putting this on par with God's word I mean you're basically saying like the prophets did thus says the Lord I mean so whenever I hear that I kind of inwardly bristle so if you if you are a Christian you have a friend doing this I think inwardly you need to kind of be having that warning siren going off like all right hang on a second what are they going to say next not in the sense that they are uh not well intentioned but i think that they need to be really careful of what they said i've also used that god told me line in hilarious ways working at a christian or being at a christian college it was always the stuff of legend when you heard that the guy goes up to the girl and says god told me to date you and that you were going to be my wife girls run when they hear that Really what they mean is, I have a crush on you. And I'm like, why don't they just say, hey, would you go on a date with me versus God told me to date you. But anyways, that's one way I've heard it used. However, more negatively, you could say, I've seen people use this to excuse their sin. Like, 
God told me it was okay for me to live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. God told me it's no big deal for me to live as a homosexual. Or God told me it was okay just this once to cheat on my taxes. I mean, I, and that's, that's the danger of not understanding that the scripture itself is closed. God will not reveal anything that is going to contradict uh, the, the oh, <laughs> I cannot talk, the Bible. <laughs> In the Old Testament, people would have called them false prophets. In the fall, and, and thank goodness we're not in the Old Testament times sometimes. You would have been stoned if you had pulled that one. Or in the New Testament, they are called false teachers. But the Bible reserves some of its harshest language and harshest punishment for those false teachers. Do, friend, please do not do that to yourself. Do not make yourself some kind of false teacher and false prophet. So to recap, just to kind of remind you about God's word. The first thing is it's authoritative. It's clear. It's inerrant. It's sufficient, and it's close. But before anything else, it is primarily a story. It's a story more than a set of propositions or a set of laws or anything like that. It's a story. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the creation, fall, redemption, restoration of humanity. It's a huge meta-narrative, this overarching story. You could say the story of all stories. And it's our story in God's story as well. So I hope that you see the significance of a God who speaks. And if you desire to hear from this God, I hope that your first inclination is to go to his word. Many times I hear um, Christians who are struggling, like, man, I'd really want to hear a word from God. And, you, and I'm beginning to think, really, my first question needs to be, okay, when's the last time you sat and heard preaching? Or when's the last time that you studied and you read God's word? Because if you really want to hear from God, you need to be spending time in his word. Moreover, in the second verse here in Hebrews 1, the author tells us that the fullest revelation of God is in his son, Jesus. Like the, old, like the prophets of the Old Testament, the son reveals the son, or the father, but more fully than the prophets of old. Uh, John 14, 8 through 11 says this, Philip said to them, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You see, Philip's desire here was, hey, you know, Jesus, this has been all real great and all that we've been with you for these three years, but you know what would be really, really, really great is for you to show us God. And Jesus is like, Philip, you don't get it. I, I really am God. Don't, don't you believe it yet? I've been with you these three years. You haven't seen God in me. Elsewhere in John, Jesus would say, I and the Father am one. So what the, so what the author of Hebrews is saying, like, look, if you really want to get to know God, you have to get to know his son, Jesus. And it obviously means the words that Jesus spoke himself. Jesus spoke many words. Uh, the Gospels are filled with those words. But it's not just limited to his speech. It's also the life he lived, the death he died, his resurrection, his ascension. All those things are about Jesus. It's a him revealing God to us. So to put it another way, it means in order for you and I to fully know and embrace God means that we have to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. We cannot go outside the means that he has appointed. So how does Jesus, so how do we get to know Jesus through his son? Well, Paul would write this, Philippians 3, 7 through 9. Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss. 
for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul's like, man, I really want to get to know God. God's the greatest thing that's out there, and I get to know him through Christ, and everything is rubbish. Literally, that means dung in Greek when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Savior, and his Lord. So my hope and prayer for you, for you who are Christians, for you, those of you who are in Christ, is that you would maybe have a renewed interest in getting to know Christ through his word and getting to know him. There's no other way to know God except in his word. Commit yourself to studying them. Spend time, to, spend time in them this year. For those of you who maybe do not know God and, have, and want to know who it is, get to know his son, Jesus. It's only through the son that we get to know God. We get to know the Father. Only through the Son we can be restored in fellowship with God. So turn to Jesus so you too, like Paul, can know the surpassing worth, the joy of knowing Christ as Lord. So we're going to come to the Lord here in prayer. So if you guys want to bow your heads, and maybe this morning you just want to ask God how he would have you commit to understanding him in his word. And for those of you who maybe aren't in Christ, Take this opportunity to ask him to reveal himself to you through his son. God, a God who reveals himself to us and has given us his son to where we can know God through his, through, uh, through the son. Lord, Lord, I do thank you for, for the book of Hebrews, for the challenge that it is to us. Lord, I pray that we would not be just hearers of the word, but doers also. Be devoted to it not just in knowledge for knowledge's sake, but also so that we can act and believe on the word in which you have spoken. Lord, I pray that we'd begin the new year in that way devoted to being people of your word, being saturated in it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, at this time,